All right. Genesis 39. We're going to get into chapter 39 today. Last time I preached, we covered chapter 38. We talked about Judah and Tamar. And I pointed out to you that Judah married a beautiful pagan woman. She, and he had three sons by her. And we noticed that he didn't even consult his father about it. And perhaps that's because he already knew what his father would say. And he didn't want to hear it. I'm sure none of you have ever done something like that. But in case you have or you're thinking about it, perhaps you should take heed from this passage. We talked about how the Bible constantly warns believers not to be yoked together with unbelievers. And that wasn't an explicit law in that day yet per se. In the days of Judah, remember the law would come later through Moses, where that would be explicitly pointed out. But it was already a consistent practice of the patriarchs. In intermarriage with the pagans of the land, the Canaanites had been constantly discouraged among the patriarchs. Remember, we saw that in chapter 24, Abraham made his servant swear an oath not to take a Canaanite wife for his son Isaac. We saw it again in chapter 28, where Isaac forbids Jacob from taking a wife from among the Canaanites. So it might have been the case... That Judah didn't talk to dad about it because Judah already knew what dad would say and Judah didn't want to hear it. Which makes me think maybe he was a teenager when that happened. I don't know. Judah didn't need to, I don't need to listen to dad. What does he know, right? I I say this all the time. When I was 15, my dad, my mom, they were the dumbest people I knew. And by the time I was 25, they were geniuses. That wasn't because their their intelligence had gone up. It was because my naivete had started to wear down a little bit. and started finding out, that's ah, Leo, they're a lot smarter than I thought they were. Weird how that works, huh? It's as if someone who's lived longer might have a little more wisdom than the 15-year-old kid that thinks they know it all. So, nonetheless, Judah decides to learn it the hard way. Ignore the advice and practice of his righteous forefathers, and he marries this good-looking Canaanite girl. He has three sons by this pagan Canaanite woman. Ur is the oldest, Onan's the middle, Shelah is the youngest. Remember that. The Bible says that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that the Lord put him to death. And some people really, I told you this last time, some people really have a problem with that. They loathe the fact that God still has the right to put to death any sinner he chooses. He still has that prerogative. That's not just Old Testament God. Some people want to paint the God of the Old Testament as this like very vengeful, judgeful. He's the, you know, the God of fire and thunder. And then the New Testament is the genie in the lamp. It's Jesus, you know, the Santa Claus God. That's simply not true. It would behoove us to remember that the Lord sees all of what we do. And even in the New Testament, he has, in fact, put people to death. Remember what the Apostle Paul told us, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there were people abusing the communion meal there. They were causing division in the church by the way they were acting in regards to the Lord's table. And Paul tells them that because they were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, for that reason, many of them were sick and some had died. God's judgment was putting people to death in the New Testament. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Book of Acts? They come in, they lie to the apostles. What does Peter tell both of them? You've decided to test the Holy Spirit, and they both fell down dead. That's the New Testament. You'll know that's east of Malachi in the book, right? So just keep that in mind. The Lord still has the prerogative to kill whatever sinner he he deems 
And by the way, when he does so, he is righteous in that judgment. So, after God killed Ur, Judah's oldest son, Judah tells Onan, Listen, Onan, you need to go into your brother's wife Tamar, perform the duty of leveret marriage. In other words, you're going to get her pregnant so that she has uh, offspring to take care of her in her old age. He's duty-bound to raise up offspring through Tamar for his older brother Ur. But Onan realizes something. He realizes, now wait a minute. If, if Ur dies and he doesn't have any offspring, that makes me the oldest surviving son. So I will get the firstborn inheritance. Remember, at the time, the firstborn got a double portion. So if you had three sons, what would happen is your inheritance would be divided up into four portions. The oldest would get the, the two, and then the rest would get one portion apiece. So the oldest got a double portion. So Onan realizes if, if Tamar doesn't get pregnant, I'm going to get two-thirds of the inheritance because there's only two surviving brothers left, which means the inheritance would be divided into thirds, and he would get the double portion, two of those. So he doesn't want to get her pregnant. He doesn't want to leave Ur with any offspring. He's not concerned about Tamar being taken care of. He doesn't care about Tamar or her needs. He just cares about himself. And so he goes in, and of course he has no problem having a sexual relation, using her for his you know, sexual fleshly pleasures. He has no problem with that. He just doesn't want to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. He doesn't want to go from 66% of the inheritance to only 25%. No problem using Tamar for his own pleasure. He wants the fleshly fun of the relationship, but he doesn't want to be burdened with the natural consequences of that fun. If that reminds you of some young man that you know, flee. God saw how Onan was being so wicked and treacherous toward Tamar, so God killed him too. That's two out of three of Judah's boys. So Judah sees this and thinks the problem's with Tamar. That's the black widow, right? And actually the problem's with his sons. So he tells Tamar, listen, you just wait when Sheila, the, the youngest boy, when he grows up to marriageable age, I'll give him to you. But he has no intention of keeping that promise. Sheila comes of age. He doesn't give it to Tamar in marriage. Judah's basically trying to just get Tamar off of his hands and forget about her. That's why he sends her off to her father's house rather than having her in his house, which he should have done. But, but you see, God doesn't forget about her. God is the defender. He's the one that sees everything. He is the defender of the orphan and the widow. Let me tell you something. If you know someone that is the orphan or the widow, they have no one else to rely on, I promise you, you'd best treat them fairly. Why? Because there's a God who watches over them and he does not sleep or slumber. He sees it all and he'll return the way you've treated them. Judah may think he can just put Tamar away and forget about her, but God's not going to let that happen. Tamar tricks Judah. She dresses up like a prostitute. She meets him on the road. Judah sleeps with her, not realizing who she really is, and Tamar becomes pregnant. And remember, when Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant, he's ready to burn her. Bring her out. Let's burn her. And she says, oh, yeah, you're right. Hey, wait, before we do that, can, can you recognize whose staff this is and whose cord and whose signet ring? Because that's who I'm pregnant by. All of a sudden, Judah changes his tune. Doesn't that remind you of us? Boy, when I see sin in somebody else, I'm ready to burn them for it. 
But if I see that same sin in me, well, I had a good reason. Well, it was justified. We use like pop psychology, right? It was okay. I, I only did that because my parents mistreated me when I was a kid, and I've grown up dysfunctional because of that. Guess what? God doesn't accept that as an excuse. You know what? Joseph could have said that too, couldn't he? Think about Joseph. That's who we're going to get into today, chapter 39. We're going to get into Joseph. Imagine Joseph. Joseph could say that, right? Was his family dysfunctional? Yeah, more than just a little bit. His mom died at a young age. Ah, it's okay. But he doesn't. He walks in uprightness. And we talked about why, why would chapter 38 stand here in the middle of, this, of, of Joseph's entire narrative kind of as, as a sidebar? Well, it's not a sidebar because we're actually going to see something incredible in Judah. Right now, we're seeing everything terrible about Judah. But by the end of this Toledot, by the end of this book, we're going to see Judah become something of a hero. But we have to guard against worshiping our heroes. We're very prone to do that as humans. We see people and we go, I want to be like that guy. That's not a bad thing. But then we can elevate them to places that they're not really elevated. You ever notice that? Listen to how we speak about people that are great at sports, as if they're inhuman. Well, that's the same thing that's going on here. Chapter 38 stands guard for us against our hero worship of Judah. It shows us that God did not choose Judah because Judah was somehow so wonderful and righteous. No, God chose Judah in spite of Judah. He chose to work in Judah. He chose to transform Judah in spite of Judah. It's no different with us. If God has chosen to save you, to adopt you in, to work through you, make no mistake, it is not because you're so wonderful and so righteous and so upstanding. You're not. You in and of yourself are depraved. You are a broken, selfish sinner. If God has chosen to save you, it is in spite of how selfish and shallow and sinful you are. And he has now decided, just like Judah, that he's going to invade your life and he's going to transform you. He's such a great and mighty God that he's even sovereign over sin. That's what we see in chapter 38 and in this chapter 39. He can accomplish his work even through broken and sinful sinners like you and me. He can still accomplish his plan. Even in a world that includes wickedness and sin, God can still use even those sinful acts for the good of his people. We'll see that with Joseph. His brothers sell him off as a slave. And he later says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God was over that. He was watching over this entire thing because he had your good in mind. Your good. You who sold me off as slavery, he had your good in mind. He loves his people. He uses sin sinlessly and he causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. That's basically the theme of today's chapter as well. God is going to use the evil of Potiphar's wife and turn it around. He's going to use what's meant for evil, and he's going to work it together for the good of Joseph and for the good of God's people in general. Here's some more hope for us all. By the end of Joseph's life, Judah is going to also have been transformed. 
God's going to work his transforming power through Judah, and the same hope applies to us today. God is at work in the Christian to will and to work to his good pleasure. Praise God for that. You, too, can be transformed by the renewing power of Jesus Christ. That is the hope. We're not just broken sinners that God leaves in that state. No, instead, he invades our life, and he starts working in us and working his will through us. And you become the salt and the light of the culture. You who were once the darkness and the depravity and the dregs of the culture now become the salt and the light of the culture. Not because of what you have, but because of who is in you. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece to edify and encourage your people through the truth of your word. Lord, let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Guard me from error for the good of your people. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. Transform and renew us by the power of your word. May all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and to you alone. Because, Lord, you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said... Amen. All right, turn with me. Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 1. And keep in in mind the timeline of Joseph's life here, by the way. It's kind of important. When he was sold by his brothers, he was 17. We found that out in chapter 37. And at the time, he was elevated to a position of power by Pharaoh. He was 30. 13 years in there. He was in prison for at least two years before his promotion. Possibly a little longer. So that leaves us with roughly 11 years. Joseph was serving faithfully as a slave in the house of the head henchman of the land, Potiphar. So I want you to realize that because I want you to realize Joseph's rise to power and to influence and to all of those things that we see was not accomplished quickly or easily. You know, sometimes we can get that idea. We can get the idea that if uh, if, if the Lord has decided to use us for whatever purpose, it's going to start tomorrow. We are like, we're like Joseph. We have the dream, and we come out and we tell everybody the dream because we're sure since God gave us the dream, it's happening tomorrow. <laughs> Sometimes God is showing you the end picture, and he's not showing you all the ups and downs it's going to take to get to the end picture. Why? He's giving you courage to get to the end picture. If he showed you the road it took to get there... <laughs> You might wake up depressed. (laughs) Eleven years. All right, let's start. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now listen. There's so much in this first chapter, in this first verse. Potiphar, so Potiphar's name means devoted to the sun. Potiphar is an Egyptian of Egyptians, and he is a brutal man. He's the head henchman. He's kind of like if you had the head of the Secret Service and the head of the KGB and the head of the Gestapo all rolled into one. He's the head henchman. All right? He could be a eunuch. We don't know. And the reason we don't know is because the word eunuch, meaning one who's been castrated, was normally what would happen for someone who is in high service to Pharaoh. 
so that the Pharaoh doesn't have to worry about this guy having dalliances with his wife or wives or whatever. So it was common practice in ancient times that if you were one of the highest in the region, you would be castrated, you would become a eunuch so that you could serve in the high royal court. But because that practice was common, this term came to be usually used, loosely used for anybody that served in these important positions of the king's court. Typically, they were, in fact, eunuchs as well. But occasionally, you'd have someone who is, this word describes them, but they're not actually. Probably he was. He was the captain of the guard, which means he was the head of Pharaoh's personal security force. He was also over the royal prison. He's not over a prison. He's not just a jail guy. He's not just the warden. He's over the prison. There's prisons in other places in the land for people that are common criminals, for thieves and drunks and all that stuff. But this prison is different. This prison is the dungeon for the royal prisoners. These are the king's prisoners. And it's in the basement of his house. He lives basically at the prison. He was a highly trusted military official. He was also would have been a man that had no problem with torture or bloodshed. He's accustomed to violence and he's well connected politically. He's not the guy when you go up on the slave block to be sold. That's not the guy you want to see buying you. Right. I mean, maybe you're looking for, you know, where's the elementary school teacher with lots of mercy gifts or, you know, internal decorator, maybe or something like that. You're not looking for this guy. You do not want to be this guy's slave because you go you you cross this guy. It's over. And that's what is going to show us some really interesting stuff later. All right, let's get back to it. Two, verse two. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. That would be Potiphar. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, that's interesting. He saw that God was with him, And God was the one that was making everything succeed. It's interesting that he sees that. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. So he's rising up through the ranks. Potiphar notices whatever he gives to to Joseph to take care of, it prospers because the Lord is with him. So he makes him the overseer of his entire house. He's not stupid. He's smart in that aspect. Wait, if everything this guy does is blessed by God, I'm going to put him over everything I've got. And everything I've got is going to be blessed by God. And that's exactly what happens. Makes him an overseer of his house and puts him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. In house and field. I think this still happens today. I think if you're an employer, you hire people who are Christians. And I mean, they don't just say the word. I don't mean a nominal Christian. I mean someone who's convictionally a Christian. You have the blessing of the Lord because of them. You know why? Because Christ is in them. If they do something wrong, they'll feel guilty about it. They want to come back. You know what? I shouldn't have done it this way. Let me make this right. They will work harder. They will be much more honest. 
They will treat people with integrity. They will have integrity themselves. They will eschew evil. That's what we see in Joseph. So he left, verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything except the food that he ate. He didn't have to look into anything, nothing. The only thing he's thinking about is, man, I wonder what we're having for dinner when I get home. What a life of luxury. Potiphar, who's used to being the guy who has to do all the dirty work, he's the henchman, remember? Now, he doesn't even have to worry about anything except what he has to eat. Joseph's taking care of all the rest. What a guy to have. Can I ask you something? Can your employer trust you like that? Can he trust that if you're looking over something, you're going to have such integrity he doesn't have to worry about it, he doesn't have to look into it? Because you're not stealing from the till. Right? You're not coming in late and clocking out early. You're doing your job to the best of your ability. You're going beyond what's needed, beyond what's necessary. Well, that was how it was with Joseph. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So Joseph was well-built and handsome. In fact, Joseph is actually one of only four men in all of Scripture that are uh, described as beautiful or handsome in appearance. Do you know that? The three other are David. David is described that way in 1 Samuel 16. Absalom, his son, David's son, is described that way in 2 Samuel 14. And Moses is described that way as a child in uh, Exodus 2. <clears throat> now listen. I realize by looking around this building that many of you probably won't understand this. But there are oftentimes more temptations to deal with for those of us who are well-built and handsome. Kenny Guzman and I alone, we bear it up. Actually, I played college football with a friend of mine who really was well-built and handsome. About six foot one, 230, blonde hair, built, looked like he was chiseled out of granite. I knew I shouldn't have. I knew I shouldn't have brought that one out. <laughs> oh, it was amazing to me how many times that we would, we'd go to eat in a place and all the waitresses would come past. We get great service when he was there. Everybody comes past. Fill up your water again. Is there anything you guys need? And of course, to smile at him. All the rest of us like, really? Are you are you serious right now? His last name was Epps, and we used to joke that the entire campus had a case of hepatitis. You just so have you noticed that it's true, and, and guess what? During the time of your life, when you're in the prime of your life, when you are the most well built and handsome you'll probably ever be, I know all of us are dreaming about you know, one day I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to look like I used to, but until that day comes, it does mean you will probably have more temptations to deal with. You will, and, and remember something this is in the prime of Joseph's life. He's in young, he's his young 20s. When sexual temptation is at its strongest, that is when this temptation comes. It's one thing to be 50 years old and say no. It's quite another for this guy to be in the prime of his life. He doesn't have some spouse or some girlfriend or whatever to be faithful to. And now he's got this lady who is throwing herself at him not one time, 
Not every now and again, day after day after day. If he slips up in his integrity one day, this whole thing's over. And yet we don't see him doing that. Joseph was living a life of integrity. And I have news for you. It is not because Joseph was such a man of integrity. It was because the Lord was at work in Joseph. Verse 7, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Come lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Sin against God. This man, who is used to being so brutal, who is used to doing the dirty work, This man has entrusted everything to me. He's raised me up. He's made me as great in his house as he is. And you're asking me to spit in his face. I won't do that. I won't do that because it's wrong to treat him that way. And it's wrong to do that because God himself sees. Joseph is saying something to her that she's never going to catch. He's saying, listen, even if I could get away with it, even if he didn't see it, God would see it. This is not some hidden thing. There's no such thing as hidden sin. It's only sin that's hidden from other prying human eyes. God sees it. I'm not going to get away with this. It's wickedness. And I won't do it. And she spoke to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. I'll point something else out. I, I don't think I should have to say this, but this entire arrangement's really not very wise on Potiphar's part, probably, to begin with. Joseph is living in the house with them. He's not even in the servants' quarters. Listen, it's a very dangerous thing when two people of the opposite sex that are not married to each other are frequently alone together. Or they have frequent private conversation. Those text messages on that phone of yours can be very dangerous. Morally speaking, it's a very dangerous situation. It's a very unwise situation when two people of the opposite sex are frequently or consistently alone together, communicating alone together. That's really flirting with disaster. That's why it's not unusual to hear of an affair between the man and and woman that carpool together to work every day or the boss and the secretary at work or between couples that are close friends. That happens a lot. Why? Because, well, the, the two are alone together and nobody is suspecting anything and they have lots of time to have alone conversation. And when that happens frequently or repeatedly, it's almost inevitable that the conversation begins to step over the line. Somebody tests the line to see, hey, are you going to reciprocate this? Bit by bit, the conversation goes places it should not. Maybe the words get a little flirty, maybe even a bit provocative. And in the course of those flirty, provocative words, maybe the physical touch barrier is breached. Perhaps it's innocently enough at first, but eventually it proceeds to prolong touches and hugs, maybe even petting, playing with the hair, and it's only a matter of time before it turns sexual somehow. It is unwise, it is dangerous, and I'm telling you, if you're wise, you will not do that. You know, most people don't jump straight into the pit of hell. You know what they do? 
They dance around the brim and flirt with it and see how close they can get without, without getting into it. And what happens is one day, because they're flirting around the edge so much, that's when they accidentally slip and they find themselves in this sin. Well, I didn't ever plan to get there. Of course you didn't plan to get there because you absolutely overestimated how much strength you have to be able to deny temptation. You don't have the strength you think, so you can't dance around the edge. Get away from it. Is it worth your marriage? Is it worth your, your breaking up the lives of your children? Is it really worth that? Well, I've never really thought about it like that. Of course you haven't. And that's why you're still flirting with it. Maybe it was accidental that you slipped. But if you were wise, you wouldn't have been seeing how close to the edge you could get to. Sadly, most Christians vastly overestimate the strength that they have to deny temptation because they vastly underestimate the power of their flesh. Because of that, they're far more willing to flirt with sin than, than it's prudent. They're willing to dance around the rim of the sin, even while their feet are slipping underneath of them. Friend, you dance around it long enough, you'll fall in. Instead of flirting with it, you need to be killing it. Mortify it. Be as brutal as you have to be. Think beyond your own momentary desire for pleasure. That's really what it is. It's just a desire for fleshly pleasure. Think about the other people this affects. I don't mean just sexual sin. There's a lot of other sin too, and it affects other people. And sometimes what we do is we rationalize it to ourselves by saying, well, I'm the only person being affected. No, you're not. No, you're not. Your wife is affected. Your children will be affected. Your church will be affected. People in your life, your parents... What would they think? Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were in there. My guess is, I, I think she probably set this up. She probably, she probably arranged this. So she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Hey, by the way, have you noticed how much trouble Joseph had holding on to his clothes? Don't give that guy a coat for Christmas. He's not going to have it next year. <laughs> Joseph, though, here does exactly what the scriptures say to do. He flees sexual temptation. He doesn't stand there. He doesn't stroke his beard. He doesn't go, hey, no, let me, let me consider it. Let me think about it. Why? Considering sin instead of avoiding it is the first step to falling into it. Thinking it through, you know, maybe, maybe there's a way. I, I could get this close to it. And, and I'd still be okay. I'd go to that party. It'll be fine. I can drink that drink. It'll be fine. I can be alone with that woman. It's going to be okay. Now you need to know beforehand what you're going to do when the temptation comes. If you wait to make your decision in the, in the spur of the moment, in the heat of the moment, in the passion of the moment, your passion, your fleshly desire will win. Fleshly passions are too strong to deal with on the fly. No, you've got to strategize against them. You have to resolve. You have to make resolutions. You resolve within yourself, if this happens, this is what I will do. And when that happens, that's what you do. You resolve within yourself how you handle the situation before the situation arises. 
I, my guess is that that's, that's actually what's happening with Joseph. Joseph knows she's saying stuff to him every day, day after day after day. It's only a matter of time before she figures out a way to get him and her alone. And I'm guessing in his mind, he's thought through, you know, while he's on his, sleeping on his bed at night or he's about to go to bed at night, he's thinking, if this ever happens, I'm just going to run. I'm bigger and stronger than her. She can't just physically force me. I'll run outside, and then everybody will know I didn't do anything. I, my, that's my guess. That's his plan. Because <clears throat> resolutions can defeat temptations and passions of the flesh. Your willpower in the moment will not. Your flesh is too strong. I, I made some principles when I first became a youth pastor years and years and years ago before I was ever a teacher. I'd read a book about basically purity, and uh, one of the things it talked about, it, it gave some examples about Billy Graham. It said Billy Graham has what he calls the Billy Graham rule. He's never alone with a woman that he's not married to. I thought, that's, that's genius. So I started doing that. You know what? That's, that's saved me so much trouble over the years. I have good friends who I go to their house. If their wife is the only one that's there, I'm not coming inside. I say, oh, come on in. No, I'll, I'll stay out here. It's fine. That once, oh gosh, years and years ago, I had gone over to Ronnie and Randy's, and, and Ronnie had not. He, Ronnie tells me, "Hey, get there at this time because I'm going to get off work." Well, he gets an extra call. He gets, he's staying there, so I'm just out on the front porch. Randy's like, "You can come in." I'm like, "No, I'm not going to do that." He's like, "You know what? I get it." Then I really appreciated that. You know why? It's not because I'm so godly or something. I have a principle that I also think shows respect to those men. There's, there's nev- they don't have to worry about some misunderstanding or some wonky behavior. I'm not going in there. Whatever has to be said, we can talk about it through the screen door. We can talk about it out here in the open, but we're, we're not going to go somewhere where we're alone. It's the same thing. So school is the same way, right? I leave my door open all the time. You have kids that come out, I need to talk to you. Cool, leave the door open. We can talk, uh, talk up here at my desk. They can't, nobody else can hear, but they can see that one principle alone will save you a lot of heartache. Folks, I, know, I don't know if you realize this, but we live in a time where you don't even have to be guilty. You know, just an accusation can really damage your reputation, right? Sometimes just a, a, a principle like that can save you a lot of heartache. A lot of people, they look at temptation and they think, well, I can handle that. It's not a big deal. I can watch that show. I can go to that party, go to the bar, drink in moderation. I'll be alone with that woman. I can text back and forth with that man. You know what Proverbs fourteen sixteen says? The wise are cautious and avoid danger, but fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. Perhaps it would behoove you to stop plunging ahead with reckless confidence. Perhaps we should stop dancing around the edge of that pit of sin. Maybe that means you stop going to that restaurant. Maybe it means you cancel the subscription. You put a filter on your computer, your phone. You get a different secretary. Even you change what small group you're in. Whatever change you have to make. Maybe you have to take some time away from that couple that you're so close with. Listen, whatever garment you have to leave behind to flee from sin, I promise you in the end it will be worth it. Verse 13, as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said, See, 
He's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Notice that it does not look like these other men actually believe that. Do they go on the hunt for Joseph? They know what's going on. They know what she is and what she's about. They're not moved by her story. They know she's a treacherous liar. Verse 16, then she laid up his garment and tell her, by her until his master came home. So Potiphar comes home and she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. <clears throat> as soon as his master heard the words that were spoken to him, that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, this is really interesting for a host of reasons. First, how is it this woman could be totally infatuated with Joseph and the next second she has it in her mind to destroy him? How could her insatiable desire be so quickly turned? I'll finish this statement for me. Hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned. Yeah, she's been scorned. What's that mean? She's been embarrassed. Young Joseph has resisted her advances, and that's embarrassed her. It makes her feel unwanted. She's been scorned. If I can't have you, nobody will. Secondly, remember that Joseph is a slave accused of attempted rape. Actually, accused of attempted rape to the wife of Pharaoh's top henchman, the leader of the Gestapo. If Potiphar truly believed that Joseph had done it, what would have happened? Oh, I mean immediate death. And yet, that's not what we see. Which tells me Potiphar knows... He knows the character of his wife. He knows the character of Joseph. And it also might be the case, it would not surprise me, it might be the case that some of the other servants catch Potiphar at some point and they're like, listen, I know she's saying that. That's not actually what happened. Because instead of being beheaded, Joseph is imprisoned. And he's not just imprisoned. He's not thrown into a prison somewhere else. He's basically put into the basement. Remember, this house, this whole palace is built on the top of this royal prison so in essence potiphar's basically just taking joseph and going eh, i can't have you around the wife i'm putting you down here in the dungeon third it's interesting to note that this prison was still guarded over by potiphar so he's not he's not getting rid of joseph he doesn't want to get rid of joseph he knows Joseph is a, a great guy to have around. He's a very trustworthy man. I'm not getting rid of him. I'm not sending him to a jail, you know, down on a different quadrant. I'm putting him down below. Now, I, now I want you to think about this, though, because that means Joseph is still inside the circle of Potiphar's influence. He, would, he was still in Potiphar's house. Next, next chapter, twice in the next chapter, we're going to find out this jail is in Potiphar's house. <clears throat> he still would have seen Potiphar on a semi-regular basis. 
But think about what's going on from a moral perspective, because this may happen to you if you're a Christian very long, I promise. It has happened to you. Joseph does exactly what he's supposed to do. He flees from sexual temptation. And because of doing the right thing, he's now languishing in the dungeon. The wicked woman that has falsely accused him, that has been so treacherous and lied about him, that tried to get him to sin against his God and against his master, she's living the life of luxury right upstairs. If anyone had reason to be bitter, it would have been him. He did what was right before the Lord, and now he's being punished for it. Now listen, friend, you're not going to like this. That's part of the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I've seen it in my classes over and over and over. I've watched poor Gracie walk through it. I've watched little Faith walk through it. I've watched little M walk through it. You do what's right, you take a stand, you say, this is my conviction, I will not disobey that. And immediately you will be persecuted. You'll be mocked, you'll be made fun of, you'll be talked about behind your back. Do you know how many good friends, I've, I've had that happen to me, good friends whom I love, whom I'm close with. As soon as we said we were going to homeschool, holy smoke, I can't believe how many people, and they think like it's not going to get back to you, you're never going to hear about it. They mock you, make fun, they ridicule you. What do you do? You walk with the Lord. Keep walking. You love them, you forgive them. You know why? You've probably done it too at some point. 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there... Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's hand because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. There's some real keys to bring out here. First of all, remember that the keeper of the prison had a boss. Who was his boss? Potiphar. This has not gone unnoticed. If Potiphar really thought Joseph was a treacherous man, as soon as the keeper of the prison goes, I don't really know what's going on. Joseph's in charge. Potiphar would have made sure that didn't happen. Instead, it seems that Potiphar really does know. And this guy does know too. This guy was probably very familiar with Joseph. Remember, Joseph was the head of everything in Potiphar's charge, which would have included the prison in the basement. So this guy is probably very familiar with him to start with. And now all of a sudden it's like, hey, I got a transfer here. Joseph's coming down with you. Oh, he is? <laughs> cool. He's running the show for me then. <clears throat> He's running the basement prison. Joseph is such a face... And I want you to think about that. And I know I'm almost done. I'm running out of time. But Joseph is so faithful and so trustworthy that Potiphar and his employees are still trusting him with their lives, even after he's been falsely accused and moved into the dungeon. They know he's so trustworthy, he won't take revenge on us. Can you trust somebody? Can somebody trust you that much? If he wanted to cause trouble, all he had to do was let one prisoner out. These guys had a life-for-life covenant in that prison. That means if you're the one that's watching over the prison and one of the prisoners gets out, You will be killed in his place. It's life for life. You're going to tell me you're going to have a guy running it and you're not even looking into it and he's not absolutely 100% bulletproof trustworthy? You'd be a fool to. 
Yet even after that, even after being treated poorly, even after being falsely accused, even after being treated wrong, he's so trustworthy that they're still able to bet their lives on his faithfulness. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? Because we should be that way. A lesser man might have used the opportunity to get back at Potiphar and the rest by causing trouble in the prison or letting a few prisoners go. Not Joseph. He stays faithful and he trusts in God. Got so much more else I want to go over, but I'm not. Just running out of time here. You know the end of the story, though. God takes what these wicked people had meant for evil, and he turns it all around. He turns it for good. You know what? Joseph's faithfulness in this probably allowed him to have such success later. Imagine if he would have just blown this thing up. Remember when, when, when the Pharaoh puts him in charge, when he becomes the second highest in the land? Potiphar would be working for him now. If he had gotten so backwards with Potiphar, if he had treated Potiphar poorly, if he had wanted to take revenge with Potiphar, he would have had trouble on his hands. Yet because Potiphar knew that is a trustworthy man, when he gets exalted, we never hear of any trouble. Why? Because even Potiphar, who should naturally be the enemy of Joseph, even Potiphar has to realize that guy is a trustworthy, is a faithful man. That guy is an honest man. That guy is a guy that if he's got a plan and we need to follow it, trust me, it's a good thing. It's going to work out. God is blessing him. I want to give you this as we go. Listen, you may think you're in a trial. You're in a bad place. People are, they're treating you poorly. They're saying things about you that are not true, just like Joseph. Can I give you some encouragement? Listen to me. Don't take revenge for yourself. Don't. My dad used to put it this way. You kill him with kindness. And in a sense, that is the Christian way. No, I'm still going to show them that even though they treat me like that, I'm going to still walk in integrity. See, when people try to get under your skin, when they get like that, they start needling you. And they're just, a lot of times what they really want is they want you to be mad. They want you to lose it. So they can really see, now I know how to push his buttons. Don't do it. Be Jesus. Die to it. Don't be worried about that. Stand up. Walk in integrity. You know what's going to happen? Number one, the Lord is going to bless you for it. You're going to walk in a way that honors and glorifies the Lord. And that's the most important. You know what else happens? Other people notice too. Other people notice, you know what, that, that guy or that girl, she's the real thing. I watched him get treated poorly, and I watched him respond with Christ-likeness. And it's a sermon without words. And it's often the case that when you come up later and start telling your testimony and telling them about the Lord, your testimony has weight because they've seen you walk it. Let me close by saying this. Do not grow weary in well-doing. In due time, you will reap if you don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I ask that we could be a people, Lord, that are faithful to you. 
that are faithful to your word, that we're faithful to walk out the convictions that we have. Let us be people, Lord, who, like Joseph, are willing to walk in integrity even when we're slandered by others, even when we're mocked, even when we're called bad names, even when we're treated poorly, when we're mistreated. Lord, let us walk in integrity. Let us um, walk in such a way that it advances your kingdom and brings you glory. Thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.